you know, it's our Anglican practice to read uh, passages of Scripture from um, throughout the Bible so that we, uh, we are able to, you know, cover the whole counsel of God. We currently use what is called the Revised Common Lectionary, and the way it's set out, we more or less cover the whole Bible in the course of three years, and that's the purpose of it. So, you know, sometimes we read passages that don't have anything to do necessarily with the text, but it's so that, you know, we can be formed by scripture you know today it was a struggle for me because it's like every text has uh, you know such powerful meaning i was wanting to preach every text but then you all will be here and then we'll skip lunch and everything so i'll spare you i just want to share some thoughts from this uh, passage in uh, the epistle of first peter the letter peter wrote to the church in asia minor and he wrote this uh, to a church that was facing uh, great difficulty, challenging them, you know, in the face of suffering, in the face of persecution, in the face of a world that seemed to be against everything they stood for, to stand firm, and how to do that. And what it meant, ultimately, really, to live the resurrection life, the life that God has given us through the resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. We are still in the season of Easter, and I thought, you know, that's appropriate for us to think about. We live in an age, as you know, we don't really face persecution as the first century Christians do, not, at least not here in Singapore, uh, although there are many brothers and sisters in Christ who still face it. And, you know, we need to stand in solidarity with them, pray for them, continue to uphold them before the Lord. But nonetheless, you do realize that sometimes not sometimes, it seems like almost all the time now, the values of the world are counter uh, the values that we hold as Christians. There's something that has arisen that, you know, has been thrown about quite uh, um, um, commonly called uh, cancel culture. <laughs> you, you know what that is, right? Uh, where you express something that is not right or you do something which is not right, you know, the the... the the society rises up against you. And in some ways, I know it's been used in a very negative way, but I, I don't want to dismiss it out of hand because there are reasons why people do it. Cancel culture sometimes happens because, you know, they want to speak truth to power. Oftentimes, people in power don't always listen. You know, they think they know things right. And it, it, it's, it's part of a democracy in which the people have an opportunity to speak up so that we can, you know, challenge some assumptions. Or at times, it's, you know, to call for accountability. And I think this is a positive thing, you know, that we ought to be accountable for the things we say or the attitudes that we hold, the ways in which we do things. Unfortunately, the way it's been used most of all, and the one that's most problematic, is the reality in which, you know, it's a social media uh, mob rule. Uh, days of your, you know, um, crowds would often take justice into their own hands. When they perceive an injustice, instead of letting uh, uh, justice work its way out through the courts of law and letting the rule of law uh, um, uh, take precedence, sometimes people want to take uh, uh, matters into their own hands. And it's, it's vigilante justice. And, and oftentimes, you know, uh, um, you find it's a miscarriage of justice because we don't always know all that's going on, the full context or the full picture of what's going on. And certainly that's the case, which is why we use it in such a, a, a pejorative, a negative way. 
cancel culture has that tendency. They take one word out of its context and then, you know, you, you cancel the person. You, you make sure that they no longer have any sort of uh, uh, ability to speak any longer. Whether, you know, uh, it was said in, 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 in truth and it's justified or not, it's not the way we ought to have, uh, 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 work with. But, you know, that's the reality because I feel like as Christians, a lot of times uh, as I read the papers, especially in the West, when we stand for biblical truth, we will at some point find ourselves standing against the cultural stream. There are times where we will have to stand up for what we believe, despite the consequences. And, you know, it's in that light, I think, what uh, Peter teaches this uh, a church in Asia Minor is very relevant. And that's how I got my title, Living Stones. It's from verse 5. Peter says to the saints in Asia Minor, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He was speaking to the church, telling them that you are being built up as living stones, that we are the means by which God is building his church in that sense. And I have two points to make in this sermon, largely derived from this particular verse. He says to them, you are both, uh, and says to us as well, you are both a spiritual house and a holy priesthood. And I see it in this way, first and foremost, as a spiritual house, it speaks about who we are, our structure, what it means to be the church of God as a spiritual house. But the second point is that we are called to be a holy priesthood. How we are called to function. You know, what is our function? What is it that we are called to do uh, as the people of God? So let me pick up the first point of what it means to be a spiritual house. In verse 6, it continues, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him, will not be put to shame. So the honour is for those who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And so we understand, of course, from this passage, and we already know this, you know, what Peter is referring to as the cornerstone is Jesus Christ. Now, very few of us are involved in the building industry, and even if we are, we didn't, don't build buildings like they did in Peter's day. In those days, when they built a building, you know, because they didn't have all the tools of the trade that we do now, they needed to make sure that the cornerstone was laid correctly. Because it's from the cornerstone that you derive the angle of the wall, the level of the wall. It's the foundation from which the rest of the building uh, takes its um, 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 dressing from, you know, it takes its alignment from, takes uh, uh, its foundation from, as it were. And that's what Peter is saying. And, and, you know, calling us as living stones is really basically saying, firstly, that we are derived from Christ. That's why in verse 4, the passage earlier begins, the verse preceding the one that I'm uh, basing our sermon from, he says to the church, as you come to him, that is Jesus Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen, and precious. In other words, he's saying Jesus Christ is the living stone. We are living stones 
in the likeness of the living stone. Who we are as Christians, who we are as a church is derivative of Jesus Christ. That we are uh, um, um, flowing forth from Him. So we are meant to be uh, uh, um, following in His steps. That's what it means to be disciples. You know, the book of Acts tells us that's why we were first called Christians in the city of Antioch. It wasn't meant to be a, 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 a mark of distinctiveness. In fact, it was actually uh, meant to tease them. Christianos means uh, basically little Christ. That we were meant to be examples of Christ to the world. So that's the first part of, of who we are as a spiritual house. But secondly... You know, this passage also tells us that as living stones, we are called to be different, right? That the stone that the builders rejected has become uh, the cornerstone. Uh, but, you know, it's uh, also contrasting, he says, you know, uh, between those who believe and those who do not believe. That there is a compare and contrast, that there is a difference. And he, he, he points out, that, you know, this stone of stumbling is a rock of offense. That those who do not believe, they stumble. They stumble. That the stumbling really in, in Hebraic uh, parallelism is saying that this, this stumbling is actually an offense. That's precisely what Paul himself said in his epistle to the Corinthians, right? That the word of the cross is foolishness to the Greeks. But it is an offense, it's a curse to the Jews. That it is a problem for much of society. That standing for our Christian faith can cause offense, it can cause stumbling. What Paul speaks about, I think we need to recognize that there are two ways in which we can live which are contrary to God's way. One is what we obviously uh, always look to and think about are those who are irreligious, who live in their own way, who've abandoned all Christian um, uh, 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 rules or, or ways of uh, thinking or ethical um, um, right and wrong. That, you know, they think by just doing my own way, you know, I can, I can forge my own path, I can find my own way. I can live life as I would like to live it. That, obviously, we know is contrary to the word of the cross. But you know, the other way, the flip side, is also equally problematic. Where we think, you know, we uh, can save ourselves by being very, very good. Instead of being very irreligious, we become very religious. And uh, in a way, if you stop and you think about this, Think about the passage that was read in the book of Acts. Stephen, who was the first martyr of the church, who stoned him? The irreligious people? No, it was the religious. Because the message of the cross, the word of the gospel that he brings, threatened them. Threatened their whole identity and self-worth because they believed that their righteousness was built upon their good works on their ability to save themselves. That the word of the cross was a threat to them. It was a stumbling block to them. Because the word of the cross says you cannot save yourself. That you are a sinner saved by grace. And that's the reality we face as Christians if we want to live 
different from the world. You know, if I could paraphrase uh, uh, what John in his gospel, or Jesus said in John's gospel, they cancelled me, they will cancel you also. Right? That's uh, basically the witness in uh, John 15. The world hates you, know that it had hated me before it hated you. If you're of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And that's the reality which we live, that we are called to be different from the world, that we must be prepared for that and be willing to stand for that. But then what is our function if, you know, as a spiritual house, what does it mean to be a holy priesthood? What does it mean to live as uh, people in that light? And I think the two functions which are important for us, first is worship, because he goes on to say, that as holy priesthood, we offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It is our act of worship. That's what the writer of Hebrews tells us. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. I like the older translations, uh, New King James or, or NRSV says, you know, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. That that That... Worship is, is, is what we are called to be and called to do. But notice what it says there. It, it is to be done continually. That we are to continually offer up a sacrifice of God. I.e., worship is not what you just do here on the weekend for an hour and a half. It's not a pastime or a hobby. It's meant to be a lifestyle. This past week, we had a, a, a gathering of pastors and leaders in the Christian church in Singapore uh, under the banner of Love Singapore. And um, you know, part of it was to continue to build relationship amongst those of us in the body of Christ. So we were seated around a table, uh, pastors from different churches. I don't know why they put me with two other Anglicans plus a few other. <laughs> you know, I see my Anglican brothers all the time. Every week we, we meet up. <laughs> but nonetheless, I sat next to a, another uh, pastor, good friends of Kunming and Huying, and uh, they were, uh, we were talking and just sharing about what was going on in life. And he told me a story which was, I mean, I think it captures this idea in a way which I have never thought about it. He talks about the fact that uh, his ministry reaches out to a lot of people who are not normally gracing the doors of the church. I mean, he was telling the story of how in one of his church services, he saw a cloud in the back of the room. And it wasn't a cloud of glory. It was someone vaping down there. <laughs> you know, when you come in, didn't realize you're not supposed to vape in church. <laughs> Actually, you're not supposed to vape anywhere <laughs> in Singapore because it's illegal. <laughs> but nonetheless, you know, um, it's the sort of ministry he has. He, he, he ministers to people in secret societies and the like. And, and he was telling the story of how, you know, uh, uh, a young person uh, was saying, you know, Pastor, is it okay for me to vape? And he, you know, the... Uh, our parental instincts say, no, cannot, you know, you're wrong, cannot do that. But, you know, he got a, 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 I think, a Holy Spirit insight. He said to him, you know, as Christians, anything we consume, we say grace first, right? So why don't you say grace before you vape? <laughs> and the guy was stunned, you know. <laughs> and he stopped and he thought about it. He said, I don't think Jesus would be happy that I'm vaping. <laughs> Pastor, I will stop. 
But this is a life of continual worship. Where everything we do, we offer up as a worship unto the Lord. If I cannot say grace over it, if I cannot pray for it, if I cannot commit it to God, why am I doing it? Right? That's what it means to live a life of worship. But from that worship flows forth a life of witness. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for, of, of, for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is a life of witness to proclaim the excellencies, the greatness of him who has brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. There is an uh, inextricable link. There is an unbreakable linkage between worship and witness. American pastor John Piper has said this several times, but you know, in particular, I, I quote one uh, article he had written on worship and mission. He said, worship is the goal and the fuel of missions. Mission exists because worship doesn't, right? Because the world doesn't worship him yet. We bring the gospel of Christ so that we can help them come to worship Him. Missions is our way of saying the joy of knowing Christ is not a private or tribal or national or ethnic privilege. It is for all. And that's why we go. Because we have tasted the joy of worshipping Jesus and we want all the families of the earth to be included. He goes on and he says, Seeking the worship of the nations is fueled by the joy of our own worship. You can't commend what you don't cherish. You can't proclaim what you don't prize. Worship is the fuel and the goal of missions. That, you know, if we are to function as a holy priesthood, it is our worship that fuels our witness and our witness, you know, uh, is, is, is because we want the world to worship. That, you know, one uh, leads to the other and, you know, it's, it's a cycle in that sense that we are called to. And that's why at the end of this passage that we are examining, we are reminded. This is why we worship. Because once we were not a people, now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. That we were chosen by Him. Not because we are choice people. We are chosen people, not because we are choice people. I, I, I've been studying this passage through the week and preparing, and I came across the, the, the quote, but after when I was preparing the sermon, I couldn't find which of the commentaries it was in. So I'm, I'm not giving attribution, but it's not my words, right? You know, he says that we are a chosen people, but we are not necessarily a choice people. I.e., you know, we are not the choice cut. We are not the best of the best. But it's because of who he is. That Jesus says, I'll build my church, and I'll build my church through the living stones of you and me. That we are brought together as the body of Christ. You know, despite ourselves, not because of who we are, but because of who He is. But if I can skip right back to the start of the passage, you know, it's actually the verses 2 and 3 really relate to the passage I preached uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago. 
um, about resident aliens. You remember that? And the last point I made was that we need to grow in the gospel. It was actually, uh, should have been related to that, that, that Peter says, as newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now understand, Peter was not here trying to contrast milk with meat. Elsewhere in Scripture, I know in the book of Hebrews, that's what the writer of Hebrews talks about. Here he's trying to point out that as babes in Christ, in a sense, all of us are. That we ought to have this hunger. Those of us who have been parents, and especially if you brought up your children, uh, um, breastfeeding them, you know this. right? Babies are ravenous. Every two hours had to wake up. Sometimes not even two full two hours. Right? They, they need to be fed. And they long and they hunger for the pure milk. And that is what uh, uh, um, Paul, Peter is speaking about to us as Christians that ought to be our appetite. And that's from which, you know, springs forth our worship. That we have tasted that the Lord is good. He's actually uh, uh, pointing to Psalm 34 verse 8. He says, the psalmist says to us, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are they who take refuge in Him. Our discipleship begins in beholding, beholding His beauty, tasting of His goodness, seeing for ourselves who He is. You know, that as we turn our eyes upon Jesus, as, as, as Andrew was leading us in that worship song, and look and gaze full on His glorious uh, uh, face, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. That we come to know the Father as we come to know Jesus, as He fills our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And my prayer is that each and every one of us, whether we've been long-time Christians, or maybe it's your first time in the church, you're not yet a Christian, I pray that all of us have an opportunity to taste and see that the Lord is good. And out of that will flow everything else of the Christian life. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you once again for your word, which shines bright upon our path, that gives us illumination for the steps we need to take in life. that shows us the way in which we should go. Father, I thank you that you are so gracious and merciful to us, that you have not left yourself without a witness. But I pray most of all, Lord, that each and every one of us will taste and see that you are good, that we will find our refuge in you, that, Lord, we will put our hope and our trust in you and in you alone not in the ways of the world, not in the values of the world, not in the comforts of this world, but in you. And I pray especially for this time that we will have later when we come to your table to commune with you, that, Lord, you would remind us of that deep intimacy you desire to have with us.
that you paved the way through the death of your son, Jesus, that we commemorate at the table. A body that was broken for us, blood that was shed to cleanse us from all sin and unrighteousness. Thank you, Lord. Ask and we pray all these things in your son's most precious name and all God's people say, Amen.